Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be conflicted and fall into the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife, must manage his children and household well. Those who have served well will gain gain an excellent standing and a great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing these instructions so that, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed in the world, and was taken up in glory. So we're continuing our series on the uh, pastoral letters, the uh, Titus and the Timothys, and we're digging into these letters to think about what it means to take care of the church, of God's house, as a uh, as Paul or uh, whoever wrote it puts here. And the point, I think, is not just for us to think about, I don't know, uh, church processes or administration. The point is to think about uh, what are the values and commitments that help each one of us to best take care of the family of God. Uh, I don't know, how do we uh, understand our shared existence as sons and daughters of the risen king? And it turns out, The primary qualifications are not the ones that we typically emphasize when we think about, uh, I don't know, this letter is basically a manual for church uh, administration. The primary qualifications are holding to the mystery and martyrdom. It's not the kind of thing that shows up in church growth, leadership, or administration books. It's not the type of thing that you'd find at a table at, uh, I don't know, a Chick-fil-A or something. Uh, It's a model of church leadership that highlights the idea that it's not the intrinsic character of the leader or, I don't know, I always thought about some fine southern gentleman with a bow tie who (laughs) might oversee the church. Maybe he's a a, a medical professional in the community or something, who knows. It's not not the the kind of social capital or uh, moral behavior of the person that makes them a good administrator. The point here in Timothy is that uh, a good leader for the church and in general uh, for those who uh, seek to be members of the house of God are that they are willing to put their own interests in the background so that the character of Christ can step into the foreground. So, you know, this is not a call to have folks who are socially respectable and endowed with high social capital to step to the fore. It's not an injunction to tick boxes for, uh, I don't know, having a successful face to the folks that are outside of the church, it's more than that. This is ultimately a call for leaders to die to themselves 
so that the beautiful image of Christ can shine. So, uh, verse uh, 1, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, the point here uh, is not simply to praise the motivations of overseers or old hands, is uh, I think what is the best uh, translation of it in the Greek. Uh, It's talking about the core qualification. The core qualification is that the overseer desires their heart, their person is directed towards a vision of the good. And we talked about this uh, term for good a couple of weeks ago, kalos or, or kala. It's a vision of the good, which, uh, you know, is different from how we think about the good. It's not just like utility. It's, uh, it's a vision of the good that, uh, I don't know, combines beauty and the idea of beauty and, and mystery with a vision of what is kind of norm- normatively good, morally good, spiritually good, etc. And I don't know, I mean, like, that's one thing I don't think we can emphasize enough in thinking about how this community thought about the good. Their vision of the good was not just a vision of, I don't know, optimizing for the best outcomes. Their vision of the good was one where uh, best outcomes were a result of seeing and uh, even being overtaken by the beauty of the mystery that is Christ. And so all the other stuff that comes out of this, all the like moral qualifications for overseers, and I think that they also uh, create moral qualifications for uh, believers, all the stuff that comes out of it to be above reproach, faithful to one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not a brawler, I'm looking at you, Benfield, uh, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. All those things are subsets of this commitment to being overtaken by a vision of the beautiful and the loving good. All these things are things that flow out of a vision of leadership and a vision of what it means to be a Christian that is about allowing yourself to be overcome by the beauty of the mystery of Christ. And we don't, you know, we don't really think that way when we only think in even administrative terms or moral terms, you know? I mean, we, uh, we have great procedures, I think, and those procedures are important and I don't know, we do our best to be good and moral people, and I, we have a, a slate of elders that, uh, you know, we're awfully proud of, and folks that have served as elders in the past, etc. Like, all those things are great, but the main thing that, that Paul wants to emphasize here is that the kind of purpose and the meaning and direction of the whole ought to be determined by people holding to the mystery of Christ in a way that is, for them, so powerful and so overwhelmingly beautiful and so good that... I don't know, when, when Paul gets to the end of it, he's not really writing rules for church administration. What does he do? He turns to a hymn. Like only poetry, only hymnody can describe the power and the beauty of this mystery that's supposed to kind of occupy the core of how folks understand their relationship to the church. So each one of these requirements that we focused on so much, if you grew up in an evangelical church, you know, is this guy a drunkard? Is he a brawler? Is X, Y, or Z? You got to kind of pair those back and, and have a vision of leadership that sees the the beauty of God's saving grace. Yes, as a result, they're temperate, faithful, self-controlled, and respectable. But we got to think carefully about that respectability part. Like, you know, when we say respectable, at least it conjures up to me the same vision of the guy in the sweater vest and the bow tie that's maybe a medical professional and keeps their affairs together well and the kind of person that people in the community would look at and say, oh, well, that's a kind of upstanding person. But, you know, look, this is a, a, a group uh, that, that folks in Ephesus are... I don't know, they're subject to colonial rule. The, the emperor basically had told them that they were supposed to, uh, the, the kind of path to social acceptability was what? Was to, to worship uh, the emperor as God. And, and we saw last week that 
uh, one of the big things that women were doing in this context was, I don't know, they're like serving as temple prostitutes and stuff. That was like a means of getting social capital. So the vision of respectability here can't just be, hey, this person aligns with the values of the culture. The vision of respectability here has to be something different. And it has to be something that's more than just having people on the outside look at this person and say, well, they're a fine, upstanding chap. And I don't know, if you start to unpack each of the individual requirements here, there's, I don't know, there's more to them than at least we typically see. So for example, the requirement that a person manage their family well, the word here is not quite manage. There's a perfectly good Greek word for manage that doesn't get used. The word here is proistenai, and it means something like Uh, It emphasizes the idea that someone would care for or attend to their family. And and the idea was, I don't know, like to quote Elvis, they they would take care of business enough that the family didn't serve as a distraction. That's the theme behind kind of all these things here. The point of the requirements is not to moralize about what people in leadership have to do. The point of the requirements is to think about a vision of leadership where there's no distractions from the person foregrounding and putting the person of Christ up front. So, you know, that's why, for example, uh, an overseer must not be a recent convert or uh, they may become conceited and fall under the same uh, judgment as the devil. Well, what's the judgment of the devil here? The Greek literally says something like they shouldn't be a neophyte in the faith. And the literal usage of the term there is lest they blow smoke or be puffed up so they engage in slanders of others. Both things, like the management of the family and the requirement for the maturity in faith, are about a person being able to minimize distraction and to, uh, I don't know, to drop themselves into the background so that Christ steps into the foreground. That's, that, that's why this reputation thing, I think, is, is so interesting. Uh, he must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into the disgrace and into the devil's trap. Now, The bad reading of this text, I think, is about us picking leaders who are socially acceptable because, I don't know, we don't want uh, controversy, but I I don't think it's the goal here. There's this kind of beautiful paired couplet here of these risks from the devil, the judgment of the devil, and the trap of the devil. I think both of them are basically about the tendency to give ammunition to distractions from Christ. And the central focus to the faith, the, the second devil reference, the devil's trap, makes this point awfully directly. So, The word for trap here is the same word that they would have used for a snare. Like, you know, you put out some bait and, I don't know, you have an elaborate net and maybe a bent stick. I don't know. I don't really make a lot of snares. I'm sure Miles would be able to make one. But the the word here that that, that's used is not just trap. It's like the netting and a bit of bait that you'd use to catch a bird. So the point of the metaphor, I think, is not that like the devil's out there actively swinging a net at you. The point of the metaphor is not that the, uh, the, the devil is out there trying to get folks. I mean, the devil may well be trying to get folks, but what's the point of the metaphor of the snare? It's that what? The bird is hungry or it wants the food and so it flies into the net. The bait does the work. The bird's kind of stomach hunger, desire for food creates the motivation. And I don't know, like the way Greek folk would have thought about a snare, the beauty of the snare is what? It's a bird trapping itself. And so I don't know, the best way to think about this is to think about that metaphor in the, uh, with the backdrop of the idea that a person has to have a good reputation. When we think about reputation, we think about a person being a pillar of the community, like they're worthy of praise, and I kind of listed all the qualities earlier. But the point of reputation here 
is not that the person has to be kind of accepted by the culture. The prevailing culture, as I said, rewarded people for some awfully bad stuff. The point of reputation here is more referring to the concept of, of, a, of a persona that doesn't get in the way of displaying the mystery. The point of the idea of reputation here is that the person stands for in some significant way, and each believer in some significant way stands for the person of Christ. And the, the qu- primary qualification is, is that person, I don't know, enough of a clearing or enough of an opening for Christ to be manifest in. So the word for reputation here, anybody got a crack at what it is? There's a perfectly good Greek word for reputation, doxa, which means like opinion or esteem. There's words for esteem. Anybody have a guess at what the word for reputation is here? Martyrion. Martyrion, which we sometimes, of course, translate as testimony. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we sometimes kind of uh, translate it as uh, something uh, meaning a person's kind of external reputation in the faith. But as I've said, I don't know, probably a million times at Resurrection Church, the kind of formal translation of martyrion is what? To witness or to die. To put yourself on the line. Of course, it's the, the, the root word that we use for the you know, transliteration martyr. It's that the idea that a person has to have a good reputation here is not that they are held in high social standing. It's that the person has a testimony which is rooted in their, uh, I don't know, desire to minimize themselves, to lay themselves on the line, to put themselves at risk so that people can see the character, the person, and the mystery of Christ. And to me, I mean, that, you know, that, that ends up like making all the other stuff in it makes sense. That's why I think that these are not, it's not like a manual for moral instruction for the church. It's about figuring out how a person in their Christian life, whether they're a leader or not, can eliminate any impediment to them being a clearing for the person and the mystery of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, as many times as we use this kind of, uh, the run of stuff that we looked at in, in Titus and Timothy to, I don't know, be about uh, what are the list of rules or checklists that we have to check off to decide if someone is, is worthy of being an elder, worthy of ministry, worthy, worthy of holding a position in the church, I think we have to once again refer them back to the kind of core goal. The core goal is that each person in the church and each person individually as a Christian ought to be able to make manifest the person and mystery of Jesus Christ. That's why I think one of the most beautiful sentiments here is the one uh, down uh, in the section about deacons that uh, kind of sums up the qualification of deacons as what? Keeping hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience keeping hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, keeping hold of the deep truths of the faith seems like a way of kind of praising the individual's adherence to or knowledge of doctrine or, you know, uh, but it's a misleading translation if we think about it that, that way. And this is my, I don't know, this has been my favorite part of Timothy, I think, so far. Uh, the word for keeping hold is not like a grasping word. The word for keeping hold is ekontas. It's the same word that we get our word echo from. And I don't know, like, isn't that a better way of thinking about what good church leadership looks like? Not that it keeps hold of the deep truths of the faith, but it echoes them. You know, in in the history of theology, there's all these kind of, I was going to say reflections, which is a stupid pun, but there's all these kind of metaphors about being a mirror for or reflecting or echoing the character of Christ. And I think it gets at it much better. It would be much better to translate it as, 
good deacons and or good elders don't just hold to the matters of the faith like it's about what it is that they believe or the propositions that matter to them. Good elders, good deacons, good Christians, ekontos, they, they echo, they reflect, they are a means for transferring the truth of and the beauty of the mystery of Christ. And all of a sudden, I think like Timothy 3 really starts to hang together in a different way than we've thought about it in the past. It's not about the active efforts in terms of character of a person who is overseeing the church. It's about their passivity in some sense. It's about their ability to echo or reflect the things that matter in the faith. And like, so I don't know, keeping hold is kind of a disaster as a translation, but so is deep truths. Okay. Anybody got a crack at what deep truths is? This is a Greek word we've talked about a lot. Mysterion. So it's not like seeing the profound kind of complex cognitive and propositional things that arise as we kind of figure out how core axioms in the faith work together. Deep truths here is mystery, mysterion. And it's the theme that the text returns to like three more times. That's what's so interesting about this is, you know, we read it as if it's just this kind of list of things that elders have to do or not do or Christians have to do or not do. But at the end, what does it say? It says that the most important thing is that the person echoes the mystery and I don't know, I mean, not to uh, beat a dead horse on this one or remind you too much, but does anybody remember what mystery means at root? Keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut. And that, that's amazing to me that the way that it talks about being a good elder or a good deacon is that that person understands and sees the character of Christ and what Christ has done. And in or- they, they, they comprehend, they see, they're engaged with, they are overtaken by the beauty and the mystery that is the incarnation. And so the, in the end, the idea that they keep hold of the deep truths, which for us, at least for the, in the church that I grew up in, would be like, oh, that person's so respectable. They really know their theology. They have it together in a systematic manner. They can think about the way that it integrates their uh, beliefs and philosophical axioms with the Bible. So they see the deep truths of the faith. And this is kind of the opposite. This is, instead of saying that it's about what the elder is able to grasp or what the good Christian is able to grasp, it's saying that it's a person who echoes the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the beauty of Jesus Christ is overtaken by the mystery and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And the measure of that is that they are attentive to a mystery, which in the end means keep your mouth shut. It's not about what you say or about what you think. It's about your ability to echo the character and person of Jesus. It's about, uh, I don't know, so the primary qualification here is something like the ability to wonder and be affected by and be transformed by an experience and awe that shakes you up and reshapes you. And that's, I think, why Paul has to turn to hymnody in the end in order to kind of capture it. Good leadership is about dying in the presence of and mirroring and echoing the mystery of incarnation and the mystery of salvation. And it's like not exactly the kind of thing that makes for a snappy mission statement or well-wrought operating procedures, but it is a vision of leading and loving that shakes us up and breaks us out of our self-interested motives so that we can be fully open to and truly reflect Christ. And I think the model of Christian community here is that imagine if each one of us echoed and reflected the character of Christ. Imagine if each one of us didn't make it about ourselves and instead made it about who Jesus is. Imagine if each one of us were, I don't know, like one of those uh, old passive solar systems out in Arizona, all of the mirrors kind of heated up the water at the top of the tower. But that's the vision of the church where the truth and beauty and power of Christ is so apparent to us that 
it overtakes us and that we reflect it to each other and all of a sudden the meaning of transfor- of community is transformed and it's not by our own virtue, it's not by our own efforts, but it's by our ability to clear ourselves out so that Christ can come here. And I don't know, it says that they have to keep to the, or hold to the, uh, hold to the, uh, the, the deep truths of the faith here. And it says what? With a clear conscience. And man, I don't know why more people don't talk about this, but you know, so you're supposed to echo, you're supposed to echo the mystery and with a clear conscience. And we talked about that word not too long ago too. The word is kithara. It's our root word for catharsis. It, 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 it strongly implies the idea that a clear conscience is a conscience there, where there are no impediments to that echoing, where there are no impediments to seeing that mystery. It's not about uh, me affirmatively saying, yes, I believe these things in a way where my mind is squared with my soul and my emotions and my heart. It's that I kind of get rid of everything that gets in the way of the manifestation of that mystery, of my ability to echo that mystery. I've purged it. And because I've purged it, I've been able to reflect it. And that's what clear conscience means there. It means something like there is a point of unity in us where our moral and spiritual and personal and conceptual and practical interaction of the world is all united because we've kicked out everything that is not about Jesus. And instead, every element of us as a person is oriented towards and is turned towards and is reflecting the mystery of the incarnation. Man, that's a beautiful sentiment. Because it implies the idea that every part of our lives can be redeemed, not by our own effort, but instead can be redeemed when we echo Christ. When the image and the vision and the mystery of Christ becomes the thing. And guess what? The amazing thing, verse 13 says, verse 13 says that it's, uh, that, that it's kind of about the assurance with which you can say things as a, uh, as a result of that. And that's the same strand of this overarching translation problem. It like, gives you this vision of the same sweater-vested, bow-tied guy who knows his theology and kind of has that has his I don't know personal life squared with the concepts and emotions that that person has and so they can speak out with credibility but the Greek word there for uh, speaking out with assurance is parisia and you remember that word too it means to speak fearlessly it means that there is an idea that grabs you and to say that idea implies a kind of danger for you even to say it but you don't worry about the danger instead you lean into it and it remakes you in a way that allows you to be credible in a way that a person who is Smooth or slick cannot because people see the transformation in you. They see the character of you echoing and being remade by the character of Jesus Christ and the mystery of Jesus Christ. And that's the thing that qualifies a person as a Christian or as a leader. It's not a person of high reputation who knows and projects confidence. It's a person who is a clearing for or who mirrors the mystery of Jesus Christ. And that's something I think that inheres for leaders as much as it inheres for I don't know, isn't the vision of the idea of leadership in the church anyway that each one of us is in some way a leader because each one of us is reflecting the character of Jesus? That's it. I mean, look, the call for leaders here, the call for all Christians is what? To have the testimony of a martyr. To put yourself aside so that you can echo the mystery of Christ and to speak about it fearlessly regardless of the consequences to you. Because after all, if you're thinking about the consequences to you, you're not kithara. You haven't purged in a way that allows you to speak fearlessly. It's not about your own intrinsic moral qualities. It's about dying to yourself so that you mirror or echo perfectly that you decrease so that Christ might increase. And all the other things that make for a good leader and a good Christian are essentially practical advice that flow out of that. They're all ways of saying, if your goal is to perfectly mirror the person of Jesus, let's not let anything else get in the way. But it's the mystery that matters. And that's why the ending note is not on the character of the person, but what? Christ. Christ. 
right? I mean, the, there, there's the, we tend to kind of emphasize the stuff at the beginning as that checklist, but when, when Paul does it, if you look at the structure of it, he's constantly returning to the idea of the mystery of, the, of a person kind of giving into and being overtaken by and becoming a conduit for the mystery of God's incarnation and death and resurrection and the human person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the core of this vision of leadership. It's the core of this vision of administering the church. Is the core of this vision of what it means to be a human being. And, that, and what, what it is is that we too ought to die as Christ died in order that we can be raised up and in order that we can be made like him and in his image and become inheritors of the kingdom, sons and daughters. And that's, I don't know, he rose from the dead to lift us up all out of the pit. And in the same way, by imitating Jesus Christ, we are able to take on full inheritance in the kingdom. When Paul talks about that hymn, what does he say? There's the, the translation that we have for today says, beyond all question. But really, the Greek word there is uh, homo logeo. It means using the same words. It means we confess. The point is not our own moral certainty or ethical certainty or propositional certainty or philosophical certainty or any of those things. It's that the thing that Paul extols is the idea that we use the same words that are embodied in this hymn. And that's a different way of thinking about what theology means, because theology's point is not for us to understand or to construct or to give a better picture of the mystery. The point of it is simply that we clear ourselves to the manifestation of Jesus Christ in us. And the reason why it matters that we use the same words is because they're not our words. They are his words. They are the reflection and extension of Jesus Christ, the world word. And it is Jesus Christ, the word that gives us a shared orientation to an ultimate reality that puts us in the world with a purpose and a mission and a vision and gives us our, not only our marching orders, but tells us how it is that we can be sons and daughters. To confess the mystery then is not to, I don't know, recite a series of propositions. It's not to, uh, I don't know, craft a well-founded systematic theology that integrates uh, scripture. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are about our own logical prowess. They're about our own ability to kind of sort out the sets of contradictions and or possibilities that are built into what we think. The point of confession here is that we confess something because it is bigger than us, because it is greater than us, because it is truer than any individually held proposition. It's why we say the creed. It's, it's not just that saying the creed reflects what we believe. It's that in doing so, we perform something. We align ourselves with the doctrine and understanding of the church because we realize that for whatever it is that we think, and God forbid I'd be a person who'd argue against having better concepts about things. Of course, that's important. But the intrinsic limit of being a fallen human is that our ways of thinking about things aren't always right. And so one measure that we use is we turn to the words that are extension of the word in scripture and in creed. And in doing so, we align ourselves to that community. We become better mirrors because we strip away the things that say it's about our excellence. And instead, we understand ourselves to be people whose goal and intention is to reflect Jesus. That's it. And that's why Paul doesn't turn to a catechism or to a, a, a syllogism or to some systematic argument about theology. Or he turns to a hymn that reflects the mystery of the faith and asks us to make those words our own words, not because we improve them, but instead because we extend them, because we continue the chorus that has begun since the singing of the angels, or even, I don't know, we continue the chorus that's begun since all of salvation history. And that chorus is this. The mystery of our faith is that he appeared in flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up in glory. Think of that beautiful ark. It starts with the flesh. 
it, it is bound up and taken up in the spirit. It's witnessed by folks who are closest to God, finally extends out to the entirety of the nation. And it's not just that it extends out, it is believed and the end of it is glory. The end of it is a vision where everything perfectly reflects the character of Jesus Christ. And that progression, flesh to spirit, seen by angels, uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the presence of God, then to the nations and finally believed, leading to glory. That's the point, the person of Christ, the mystery of Christ, our ability to reflect it, to clear ourselves away and to allow us to wonder at the character of that mystery, to be taken by its beauty and then to speak out of, uh, I don't know, the sense that we're overcome by the truth and the goodness and the beauty and the mystery of it all. And that is what validates our ascent to it. We reflect it. We mirror its beauty. And that is the call for an elder. It is the call for a deacon. It is the call for men, for women, and from the church, from flesh to glory. From flesh to glory. We start where we are. We start as people who are given with a specific place in life, a task, a family, a community, beliefs, emotions, all those things. But in the end, our goal is to the greatest extent possible for those things to be refined by the character of Jesus, to be oriented towards and to be submissive towards the mystery. And in doing so, the Christ becomes our all in all. The condition of our glory is not our glorification of ourselves, but rather that we let his glory shine through us. So our job is to step aside and to die. And out of that act of self-immolation, out of that clearing of space comes the beauty of Christ martyrdom in the face of the mystery. To lead is to die. It's to step aside and allow the mystery to shine. Amen. Questions or talk? Dan.